So I want to pick up with that statement. We are back to Luke chapter 2, as has already been mentioned. And I, I, I want to pick up with Luke 2. I want to pick up with, Char- with what Charles said. I want to tie this back to the way I ended the message last week. If you were here for Easter, I closed with this story about um, uh, our efforts, uh, unsuccessful ultimately, to rescue a young father who was drowning in Lake Michigan, and how in, the, in the, the, the days and weeks and months that followed as I rehearsed that story countless times, it, it never occurred to me that uh, what I could have done was to, was to have my son jump in to try and rescue this man, even though he is a much stronger swimmer than I am. That thought of sending your child into harm's way is is it's unthinkable to an adult, right? We would go a thousand times out of a thousand before we would think about uh, our own children suffering. We would lay down our life for them. That's a parent's instinct. That's the way we're wired. It makes it all that much more amazing to say again that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The father's love was so amazing that he sent his son to his son's death, and he did that for you. I want to I stay on that idea as we, as we go back, as, as has been mentioned, to the beginning of the story. We were looking last week at the crucifixion and, of course, at the resurrection of Christ. We now go back to uh, another big idea which is the incarnation, God becoming man, and it's found in this Luke 2 passage that we just read. Uh, We're going to watch a film clip of this in in a few minutes, but I want to set the stage, want to be sure you're understanding a few things about Luke before we go there. First of all, we're looking at history. Remember, Luke is reporting the results of his investigation with eyewitnesses. I I stress that this this is the account of what happened to real people. It's real events, real time and space. And I stress this because today there is a tendency to separate faith from reason and to say matters of faith deal with intuition, deal with uh, our feelings, deal with internal issues, where matters of reason deal with fact and real events. Consequently, what you believe as it relates to your faith, well, you're free to believe whatever you want to believe, whatever helps you, whatever gets you through the night, right? as long as you don't try to impose that belief as if it's true in any kind of universal sense. Faith deals with the internal world. We look inside to know what's true in this arena. Reality is tied to reason and facts. I want to start by saying Luke does not accept that for a moment. That idea right, of dividing faith and, and reason is common today, but it's, it's just the latest trendy 
intellectual architecture that is being introduced. 25 years ago, as a culture, the West began to push aside tradition, push aside uh, uh, revelation, messages from God like the Bible, push aside even to some extent reason, and to move more completely towards experience. And so people talk about what feels right. That's in the air we breathe. It's, it's, again, it's the trendy idea, and it's nonsense. Don't drink the Kool-Aid, right? It's, it doesn't, Luke is not going there at all. If somebody said to you today, you know, I don't, I don't really feel like Abraham Lincoln was president of the United States. It doesn't really, that's not part of my story. It can be part of your story. It can be true for you, but it's just not true for me. It doesn't, I just don't feel it. You would go, what are you talking about? You don't feel it. Who cares if you feel it or not? It's, that's not, the, either it happened or it didn't. Either Abraham Lincoln was president or he wasn't. And if he, and if he was or wasn't, how you feel about it has no bearing whatsoever on what happened. So either Jesus was born to Mary in Bethlehem or he wasn't. Either Jesus is God who has become man or he wasn't, right? It either happened or it didn't. Luke presents this as real history. Secondly, this is prophecy being fulfilled. The story is thousands of years old. And God, being God, knowing the beginning from the end, knowing all things, having a plan, had made predictions, had made promises, had said, this is how it will unfold. And, and we see two of those predictions being fulfilled in this passage. In, um, in Isaiah chapter 7, it had been stated that, uh, you know, he says, this will be a sign for you. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. So 700 years before Christ was born, this statement is made. This will be a sign, right? The virgin will conceive, you will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. This passage is a fulfillment of that prophecy. Also, the fulfillment of a prophecy found 300 years later, still 400 years before Christ was born, Micah 5.2, saying that this birth will take place in Bethlehem, which is a small little town. This is not like saying, you know, I, I think that there will be a leader that will emerge out of China or India or... Africa, that area there, uh, wow, you've limited it to, you know, more than half the population. Bethlehem is a small little town. If, um, if you uh, got the letter that I send out, my monthly letter, well, bigger if, if you read the monthly letter that I sent out, <laughs> then... Uh, then you heard that there's a few bigger pieces of news, and one of them is that MJ, our, um, our middle school pastor for the past eight years, MJ and his wife Sarah and their family are moving. They're leaving us, and they are headed uh, to Wilmot, South Dakota, where he is going to pastor a church there. I'll be the solo pastor of this church. We're very sorry for our loss. We're very excited for them. We knew this was coming 
And so I announced this, uh, this departure. You probably have not heard of Wilmot, South Dakota, population 600. Um, but just for the record, it's probably six times bigger than Bethlehem was when Christ was born there, right? Small. Think little village. God, being God, said, I'm going to send someone. Here's one of the signs, born of a virgin. Here's another sign, going to be born in Bethlehem. God gives the prophecies throughout the Old Testament that he gave to encourage people during difficult times to remind them, right, the rescuer is coming. But he also gave prophecies to confirm that he's God. And to just go on record. We can't, we can't make these predictions. Anyone here perfect on their NCAA bracket so far? Call every game right? We can't predict what's going to happen tomorrow. God is going on record 700 years early, 1,000 years earlier. He's saying this is how the story will unfold. As it unfolds, there is confirmation. Our faith is not something that we look inside ourselves and see whether we feel it or not. It's not based on how we feel. It's based on external facts and reality. That's the way it is presented to us. We have history here. We have prophecy here. It's also worth noting we have reality here. And reality is often very different than we understand it to be. And in this particular um, passage that we're looking at, there's a real contrast going on between uh, Caesar Augustus, who claims to be king, and Jesus, who's a helpless infant. So you have Caesar Augustus. Well, let me just read this to you. This is, this is the Luke passage, Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus. So the name Caesar Augustus means august. It means revered. He was, he, his predecessors were deified as gods. He chose not to be deified, just to be the high priest of every religion. Okay? So he's understood to be the most powerful person on the planet. That's how he would understand himself. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. Just for the note, the word Roman is not in the Greek text. They issued a decree to take a census of the entire world because they only recognized the Roman world because they believed that they were it, that that's the mindset that is here. So he issues this decree, and also this is the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Quirinius was like a cabinet member for Augustus. Part of the reason Luke has this information in here is because he's a, he's a historian and he's dating everything and he's trying to say very specifically this is how it happened, right? Not a long time ago in a faraway land, but right here, this was the year that this took place. Then it goes on, it says, um, Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth to Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem to the town of David because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, pledged to be married to him, was expecting a child. While they're there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Caesar, power, money, center of the world. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, poor, right? 
they're, they're, in, they're moving from Nazareth, never mentioned in the Old Testament, never mentioned in any Jewish literature, to Bethlehem, tiny, right? No power, no money, the center of nothing. So Luke is making this contrast here between these two. And the first time you read it, you, you get the point. And the second time you read it probably reinforces the point. It may not be until the third or the fourth or the fifth time before you finally go, well, wait a minute. This is exactly opposite. Caesar doesn't have the power. Caesar thinks he has the power. Caesar is Caesar's the name of a pizza chain and a, and a, and a dog, right? I mean, we, we, Caesar is not the one who changed the world. It's this little helpless infant who is the true king. Caesar is vain. Jesus is power stooping down, humiliating himself out of love for us. Very different reality than we initially understand. Well, I want to show you this clip. It's just a couple minutes long. This is what is taking place as Mary and Joseph are at the tail end of the four-day donkey ride from Nazareth up to Bethlehem. Now. Now. Yes. We're very close. Bethlehem. Here. We will find a place. I promise. Let's back up just a little bit from that moment. Um, I, I made the trip from, from Nazareth to Bethlehem uh, a few years ago in the back of a cab. It's uh, 100 miles, takes a couple hours. 
And looking at the back of this car, uh, I was struck by two things. First, the, the terrain is harsh and desolate. It's rocky. It it's, does not look like any hike I would like to make. Secondly, it's principally uphill. Okay, so Bethlehem is very close to Jerusalem. I've jogged between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Assuming you can get through the checkpoints, takes 10, 15 minutes today. Not difficult. They're not far away. Jerusalem is on the top of Mount Zion. It's on the top of a mountain, right? That's where you build your capital because it's easy to defend the top of a mountain. So you are traveling from Nazareth, right, up to Jerusalem, and then it's just a little ways from Jerusalem to go to Bethlehem. It's, it is a uh, hot, hard, difficult trip to make on a good day. And I suspect that um, there are no good days if you're nine months pregnant and riding on a camel uh, at the end of a four-day trip to get there. There was uh, recently, a couple years ago, there was a, a young couple that set out to recreate the, the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem, a young couple and a donkey, and they made the trip except on the way the donkey died. It's a difficult trip. However, I want to be certain that we are amazed at the right things. It's possible that we actually overplay the, the drama that is surrounded, um, that surrounds the way the story is told in the Nativity story, this film we're looking at, and the way that the story is retold on Christmas Eve uh, in the West. If you go there today to look at, at the place where Bethlehem, uh, where Christ was born, what you find is the Church of the Holy Nativity, which is uh, a church that has been there for a long time. You see the outside there on the left. Uh, you see what the inside of the hall looks like on the, the right. And then down below, you see a place where you go down the stairs into a little cave, and there's a, there's a spot marked with a star. You wait hours to do this, but you, you, the, the lines of pilgrims just generally goes for hours of people wanting to get there and touch that spot, kiss that spot. Tradition would say this is where Christ was born. We don't know that for certain. Remember, it was illegal to be a Christ follower for most of the first 300 years, so there wasn't an opportunity to mark any of these spots early on. Uh, this church, the Church of the Holy Nativity, was built initially by uh, Constantine's mother. Uh, it was built in the early 4th century, and it's been a, a place of Christian pilgrimage for 1,700 years. It's not to be dismissed. Uh, it's a significant place, but we're not positive that that's the spot. Additionally, we're not positive that it's filled with quite the drama that gets captured in this film clip. The way the story is generally told is that the, you know, Bethlehem is overrun by people who've come back there for this census. There's no room anywhere, and so they end up outside in a, in, in a stable, in a, in a barn, so to speak. 
And some would even tell the story to suggest that it's not even that, it, that the, the Bethlehem is filled with people as much as it is that the scandal surrounding Mary's pregnancy has reached Bethlehem and no one is willing to extend a place for her to stay. Uh, in recent years, scholars, especially Middle Eastern uh, historians, have said, you know, we actually think there's a different way to read this. And you have to understand the way these terms were used back then. So this, uh, we, we get this room here. Uh, that This would be what a, what a basic first century Bethlehem dwelling would look like. couple key things to note. The, the guest room, the kataluma there on the right, is uh, that word kataluma probably is more accurately translated guest room, not in. Bethlehem is small. There's no hotels there, right? You're not, you're not showing up to check in uh, at, at, at any nice hotel. And there's, so what's being said is that they came, and we don't know that, that she shows up in labor as we try to make the story say. It says, while they were there, the days for her uh, term, her pregnancy, come to term, and she gives birth. So it's likely that she gives birth in the family room. The men would all leave, and she would give birth in the family room with the women, and then the manger is also called, it's a feeding trough. And, and you see that the stable was really part of the, of the home. They would bring the animals into the stable at night because they provided warmth and to keep them safe from anyone stealing them. So we're now looking at this and saying it's, probably more likely that, that Mary and Joseph, they, they couldn't stay in the guest room. Somebody was already there. It was crowded. But she was there in, in the family living room, gives birth, and then places Jesus in this feeding trough, an indentation that, that's there uh, for the animals to, to eat at during the night. It, Opinion is moving in this direction, and it makes a lot more sense to me because I've always been mystified that a woman could be in labor and no one would give up their room. It just seems unthinkable to me. No matter what's going on, you go, well, take my room. Good grief. I'm not going to stay inside while a woman gives birth to a child outside. So it's perhaps not as bad as it is sometimes told. But it's a challenge, right? Mary's 13 or 14 years old. She's away from home. It's been an exhausting four-day camel ride uphill. This is not the, you know, birthing suite at uh, North Shore University Healthcare Systems that they're checking into where everything's going to be taken care of. This is, this is a difficult spot. However, that's not what we should marvel about. The, 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 the drama, the fact that Jesus is born in Bethlehem is next to the animals is, is, not, is not 1% of the, of the mystery here. If we want to marvel, we need to marvel at the incarnation itself. We need to marvel at the idea that God would become a man. And this is, this is a mystery, and it raises two profound questions. First, how does this work? And second, why did God do it? 
How does it work? Please understand the claim here. The claim is that Jesus, who has existed forever as God, before the incarnation, he wasn't called Jesus. He was called the Logos. He had no body. He was spirit like his father. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was was the Word, the Logos, the second member of the Trinity. He was with God, the Father. He was God. In the fullness of time, his assignment is to become a man. While remaining God, he becomes a man. Fully God, fully man. He stoops to do this. The creator becomes part of the creation. It's unthinkable. It's it's unthinkable. Now, how how did it happen? How does he do this? We don't know. Right? I mean, what we're told and what the early church was very careful to delineate is that it wasn't that he was God and then he became a man. It wasn't that he was God but then he became half God and half man. It wasn't that he was God who just looked like a man. It wasn't that he was God part of the time and man part of the time. He became fully man while remaining fully God. The closest we get to being told how this happens is in Philippians chapter 2, where it says, Christ, who being in the very nature God, his essence was God, he was God, did not consider equality with God, the Father, something to be grasped, something to be clung to, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. The Greek word here is kenosis. He made himself nothing. Sometimes it's translated he emptied himself. If you read 15 translations, you'll get 15 different efforts to capture this word kenosis because <laughs> we don't know how it works. Right? I mean, as God, he would be all-knowing. As a, as a person, he would be limited. As God, he, he would be unchangeable. As a person, he changes. Right? As, a, as God, he's all-powerful. As a person, he's limited. How do you put those together? We don't know. I mean, the incarnation, the, the hypostatic union, to use the theological term here, the, the dual nature of Christ, one person in two natures, we don't know how it works. It's beyond us. This is a mystery every bit as significant as the Trinity. We know that the, that the early church was pretty careful to say, that, that as they define this in the, in the Chalcedonian Creed, that they said that Jesus exists as one person with two natures. These natures exist without confusion, without change, without division, or without separation. We only define it by saying what it's not. We can't say what it is. There's a big how mystery there. But even that is not the thing to be amazed by. The thing to be amazed by is the why. Why would God do this? Why would God humiliate himself as he did? Why would he stoop? 
let's put this in context, right? If Christ had shown up uh, as, as, a, as a, the, the son of a king, and he'd been born in Rome, in the palace, gold bassinet, right? If he'd been born today in, you know, London or New York City or Tokyo or, or Chicago, if he'd, been, if, he, if, if he'd been born to all the money that, that Bill Gates has or someone else has and had the entire population of the planet fallen on their face and worshipped him, that would still have been a radical humiliation on the part of God. He entered time and space. The creator became part of the creation. It it, is the most dramatic downsizing you can possibly comprehend, and we can't comprehend it. Some people have said, well, it's sort of like, it would be like us becoming an ant. No. No. Can you create an ant? Can you speak an ant into existence? No. Could you put an ant together if we gave you all the parts? No. Right? There is a a qualitative, existential division between God and us that isn't there between fellow creatures. The creator became part of the creation. And the amazing thing is that he did it For you and for me. The Bible explains all this by pointing to God's love. That's why. Why did God do this? He entered our world of suffering and pain. He took it upon himself. He pays the debt. And the motivation is his love. No one, no one, no one will ever do for you what God has done for you. No one can come close to what God has done for you and me by entering time and space. The mystery begins with the incarnation. It's not just that he did it so that he could die. The radical humiliation of God, God's stooping, starts with the incarnation, and he does it out of love. And our response, to the extent that we understand any of this, our response has to be obedience, worship, awe, (laughs) doing all we can to be like him, to carry out his assignment, to love and serve and give our life away as he did, not earning it, because it's not about that. The the hero of the story is always and forever Christ, not us. He, He doesn't love us because we're so lovable. He loves us in spite of who we are. He's the hero. It's an amazing thing that he does. And our response is to worship and obey. And part of that includes coming to this table and declaring again our allegiance to Christ and taking 
in the bread and the the cup, the, the body and the blood of Christ, acknowledging that we need him that completely. And so as um, those who are going to distribute the communion elements come forward, let me set this table up for us again by noting that at, at Christ Church we practice an open communion table. That is, that it is open. Uh, anyone may participate uh, regardless of church membership here, uh, provided that Christ is your Savior and Lord, your hope, and that you uh, will, uh, as we were all prepared to do right now, uh, humble yourself again, confess your sins, invite the Spirit of God to bring to mind sin that you should confess even as you prepare to come to this table. So I'm going to pray for us. We'll distribute the bread and the cup and then would ask that uh, you would hold on to it and we will partake together. Let me pray. Lord God Almighty, we, uh, we marvel at your great love for us. Uh, as we have said, as Charles said, as, as I noted in my story, a parent's heart is to protect, not to send a, a child into harm's way. And yet you sent your son. And that is, um, that is a, a love that we cannot comprehend. And Lord Jesus, you uh, accepted that assignment. You, um, you willingly gave your life. No one took it from you. You set it down on our behalf. We praise you and marvel at what you did. And acknowledge that it is, uh, it is your death uh, that pays the debt. Somebody has to pay. You paid. And we declare that our hope rests in your payment. And Spirit of God, we pause now to ask that you would meet with us, guide us, direct our thoughts, shine truth into the dark corners of our hearts that are full of pride and greed and lust and anger and ego and all kinds of things. We confess again as we prepare to come to this table. Meet with us now in Christ's name. Amen.